Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD with Teddy Gelman. I feel like I need to stand up in studio here and kind of experiment with how that would work. Brandon Halvek. Their whole defensive line has been arrested once or twice over the past two years. Ahmed Quadri. Yankees are fun to watch, end quote. That's it. That's all I ever said. And Jake Lampert. Eat more chicken. There you go. I'll throw a slogan in there if anyone here is uh, working for Chick-fil-A and wants to throw me some sandwiches. It's Sports Talk Radio on 91.3 WVUD. Welcome to the cage. Welcome to the cage here on 91.3 WVUD. I'm Teddy Gelman with Brandon Holvek. Amid Quadri will be joining us momentarily. Jake Lampert out this week. He is in Israel on a birthright trip, so we will not have Jake this week. And we won't have him next week as well. So Jake, hopefully he is doing well out there in Israel, having a good time. Also, he's not the only WVUD sports member on that birthright trip. Also, D. Rose, Dan Rosenfield on that trip as well. So to those members on the birthright trip, hope they have a great time and they'll be back in a little while. Brandon, we have a lot to get to on the show today. Very much NFL-centered. We'll talk about the college football championship games Not just Alabama. Also, JMU, are they a dynasty? I'm sure that'll come back in the picture a little bit. But we have to start. Congratulations to Matt Nagy, former Blue Hen, now the head coach of the Chicago Bears. Yeah, the first head coaching job to kind of drop and kind of get some real news around it outside of Jay Gruden, which, or excuse me, John Gruden, which was kind of, uh, you know, we, we saw that coming after the news of Del Rio being fired. Gruden, that news came out almost immediately after. But with Nagy, was the offensive coordinator with the Kansas City Chiefs, interviewed for a few of these openings around the league. And now he gets, I think, a pretty good job in Chicago. I don't think it's the most desirable vacancy out there, but for a first-time head coach, uh, it's definitely exciting for him. And you could tell from online reaction and reaction from people in this area that it's something that a lot of people from here are excited about. It's the first Delaware athlete or coach to go to the NFL and be a head coach. So that's awfully exciting. And as they'll be quick to point out, he also had a pretty accomplished career here at Delaware, was a quarterback for multiple seasons, graduate of the Blue Hens in 2000. He still has the all-time records for passing yards in a career with 8,214 and passing touchdowns at 58. And it was kind of cool to see on the Bears' online presence. And as they announced him, some of the highlights of him in a UD uniform as he was announced as the next head coach of the Chicago Bears. And maybe not the player that is in the same conversation from our minds with the Gannons and the Flaccos as far as what they did as a player in the NFL. But as a player and a quarterback here at Delaware, he was somebody who broke records by Rich, he, he broke Rich Gannon's records, and then some of his records were broken by Joe Flacco. And you're looking at two guys that have made deep postseason runs there. So for Nagy, part of the Andy Reid coaching tree in, yep. in uh, Philadelphia and then in Kansas City. And what he said during his press conference is that somebody asked him, how did the Bears handle when the Chiefs lost that game to the Titans on Saturday? When did they start contacting you? And Nagy said, well, you know what? They wanted to have respect for me and what I was feeling after that loss. So they said, how much time do you need before, let's say, we're going to set up an interview? And Nagy said, that really stood out to me and that kind of fueled me and I was ready to go. And so he was hired very, it might have been Monday. They lost that game on Saturday. 
either Monday or Tuesday, early in the week, yeah. the, the news comes out that he was hired. And a, a new face for the Bears, and I was reading some commentary by some of the Chicago analysts and a lot of people familiar with the franchise that has have a lot of success. They're a little questioning this at first, but it seems to be a nice young face for Chicago, a guy who's very familiar with the offense, and he's going to have to deal with this quarterback situation, Mitch, Mitch Trubisky, what are they going to do in Chicago? But congratulations to Matt Nagy, former Blue Hen, now the head coach of the Chicago Bears. That's obviously going to be the biggest question for him entering this job is what do you do at quarterback and how do you build an offense around Mitchell Trubisky? I think if you take this job, you have to have seen something that gives you some confidence in Trubisky, who was the number two overall pick last year. And overall, I think that this Bears offense is just devoid of talent elsewhere. I think they could use a couple playmakers on the perimeter. They have Jordan Howard, who's one of the leading rushers, top 10 rusher this past season. But you kind of see what the Eagles did with Carson Wentz as maybe a blueprint. Good year one, not great year one. Get him some weapons, some help around him, and then maybe Trubisky can take off. He has some of those same traits, too, when he gets outside the pocket uh, and kind of his eye manipulation down the field. And Nagy's had a lot of opportunities, too. Should just point out real quick before we move on that uh, Kevin Tristolini of the News Journal reported last year that when the Blue Hens were looking for their new head coach, he was one of the candidates that they talked to about coming back here to Delaware and being the head coach of this program. But he decided to stay kind of on that NFL coaching path, being the offensive coordinator there in Kansas City for a couple of years, was a position coach before that. And as you can see now, it definitely paid out for him, or excuse me, paid off for him, I guess you would say in Chicago now being a head coach there in the league. You mentioned the Blue Hens football team. That's a perfect transition. Last week we were talking about the, how when Delaware played Jim, James Madison back on September 30th, that may have been the closest James Madison right. was faced the entire season. Of course, JMU won that game. They went undefeated throughout the regular season, punching their ticket to the FCS National Championship. It was a good defensive game. North Dakota State comes out on top 17-13 to over defending champion JMU out of the CAA that game on last Saturday in Frisco, Texas, a game in which JMU had plenty of opportunities, a lot of dropped passes. They did not look like the familiar Dukes out there. And North Dakota State, a team that gets back on top after their streak of winning, was removed last week, last year when JMU won. And to our conversation last week about whether James Madison could become a dynasty, it's definitely clear that on the other hand, North Dakota State is a dynasty. We knew that. We didn't even mention that. We, we either it got past us or we didn't think of them. But right. we did not mention North Dakota State at all as a dynasty. They are one. Yeah, with this championship, now six national championships at this you know, subdivision of college football in the last seven years. So six out of the last seven, North Dakota State has won. Again, the only one being the win from James Madison last year, which broke up their streak. And I believe they beat James Madison, beat North Dakota State in the semifinals last year to get into the national championship. This win for the Bison breaks up JMU's longest FCS winning streak at somewhere above 20 games dating back to last season. They finished this year 14-1 and as they finished last season 14-1. and except obviously this year doesn't finish off with that national championship win. But they had chances to win this game. I think you'll probably come out of it surprised that the offense didn't generate as much as it had throughout the course of this season and even dating back to last year. <clears throat> but on the at the same time, 
It's a team that's dealt with a lot of injuries offensively. I think they did a great job continually bringing in new running backs that basically filled the gap immediately. I think Cardin Johnson was the guy at the beginning of the season. He goes down. Trey Sharp picks up where he left off. He goes down. And it, it just seemed like kind of that, you know, cliche next man up, but it really did work for them. They just ran into probably a better team in North Dakota State that has it from top to bottom. Both of these really good teams, but I mean, that's North Dakota State is the Alabama of this level, if you will. I can't say enough about what James Madison quarterback Brian Shore did. To me, he was awfully impressive. This is a guy that has been talked about as a runner, as a passer. We saw him do all of that in the last couple seasons down at in Harrisonburg. And then this year in Newark, when these two teams played, Delaware and JMU, is this guy an NFL prospect? I, I was just I look. I was so. just looking it up. You don't think so? No, I mean, I, I probably haven't seen enough of him to really judge that. But I mean, I think if you look in the CAA, you got to be somebody more like Kyle Aletta, I think, to be an NFL on the NFR radar. I don't think Shore has the arm strength, and he wasn't forced to make those reads. Just, I mean, this is such a small sample size. I don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about this because that game against Delaware, he threw for under 100 yards, but it was super windy, so we didn't really see what he could do fully. But from just a general outset, from the look of it, I, I would kind of doubt his NFL prospects. They've they've got another, at least one, I know one of them, Andrew Ankara. He's one of their defensive linemen. He actually went to my high school, and he That's cool. he has been... His brother, I think, I forget his name, but but Andrew Anchor's brother was on the Texans for maybe a couple weeks. And this this was five or so years ago. But Andrew Anchor, I know, is, is an NFL prospect. This is not somebody that's going to get drafted in the first two, three rounds. But this is somebody who we could see later on. Just keep that name in mind because he stood out. I was watching him in that game. A very physical guy. I guess I don't want to make this comparison, but if Roquan Smith for Georgia stands out on that defense, to me, Andrew Anker stands out as a powerful defensive player on the JMU defense. But the Dukes, as we've mentioned last week, are most likely going to be the favorite in the CAA next year, even though they'll lose some valuable pieces. I don't think they're a dynasty. I don't. I don't think they've. I don't think they've claimed dynasty status. But I, they definitely have put themselves in a position now, especially locking up their coach, Mike Houston, through, what is it, 20-something? 20, 20 they locked him up for several years. They're going to be in a position to be one of the top teams, if not the best, in the CAA for the next couple of years. Yeah, they don't have everybody, when you look at the offensive side of the ball first, they don't have everybody coming back. Brian Shore's the biggest loss. Obviously, anytime you miss a multiple-year starter at quarterback, it's a huge loss. But they have guys who can come in and replace. When you build not just a good team, but you build a good program, you have that top talent attracted each year to your team because of the on-field success, because of the facilities, because of their dominance over the CAA. So I'm sure that they have players in the wings that are ready to step up for this team going forward into next season. Like you just said, I think that they are hands down your favorite in the CAA. I would be surprised if anybody dethroned them I guess you'd have to look at like an Elon or maybe Delaware as the next best team as you look through here I mean I would probably throw Richmond out because Kyle Alletta meant so much to that team they lose him be tough to replace him again maybe they will but he he accounted for so much of that offense you look at New Hampshire as I think they're still kind of borderline we don't want to go all the way back into that Delaware versus New Hampshire thing from last year but 
they're probably not great. Elon, we'll see if they can repeat their success this year. It's kind of a, I don't want to say a fluke year, but it was certainly out of the ordinary to see them this good. Um, but they do have a lot of that talent coming back, and it could be a page-turning year for them that can, vaults them into contender, contender status year after year. Um, but after JMU, there's that, there's that hole, but I think JMU still has to be considered the top and probably by a bigger margin than maybe even this year. Well, I, I, we haven't talked about the Delaware football team in a couple of weeks. It's been break. We, we've got to the NFL. We've kind of gone off of that because there wasn't a lot to get to. But if we do a very, very brief preview to next year right now, to me, I mean, you say maybe Delaware's there. I, I think the Blue Hens should be considered as one of the top threats to dethrone them. I'm not saying that they're going to. There's a lot of questions with this Delaware football team primarily at the quarterback position, but if they take a next step forward, for, to me, there's, that's, the, there's next no, step, right? that's the next step, right? I, mean, I guess maybe there's a smaller step in getting okay, actually in making the, the playoffs. playoffs, but this year could have already been that step. You know, like you could already look at this team and say, okay, they're a playoff quality team. They're a playoff caliber team. They just didn't get in. They didn't finish the job, right? They One, they probably should have beat Villanova, and for whatever reason, it's a letdown. They probably should have beat Towson. They're a good enough team to be in the playoffs if a few things go the other way this past season. So if you accept them now as a playoff caliber team in 2017, moving forward, the next step is to actually be a contender and to be a contender within the CAA. And then the next step beyond that is to be a contender at the FCS level. And I think this team has enough returning talent that that should be the expectation, is to be a contender within the CAA. Probably not beat James Madison this year, but to be second or third in the conference. We also didn't mention Stony Brook. Stony Brook probably is also in that conversation after a really good season last year, but they were bounced in the first round of the FCS playoffs. So I don't think that that's a team that scares you that much, and it's a team that Delaware beat already last year on the road uh, against Stony Brook and their place. You know who's a quality playoff team? That's the Alabama Crimson Tide. Three straight appearances in the College Football National Championship, and it wasn't if it wasn't for Deshaun Watson's miracle finish last year, it might have been three straight championships for them. We'll transition now into the FBS and recap the win by the Crimson Tide against the Georgia Bulldogs on Monday for a while. In that first half, it really looked like what Georgia was doing defensively was enough. And the way they were holding this Alabama offense in check, then the quarterback changed. Jalen Hurts comes out for Tua, the freshman from Hawaii. I'm not even going to to attempt to pronounce his last name because I know I will butcher it. But Tua comes in and he guides his team to the win. And I don't know about you, Brandon, but for me, in the late third quarter, early fourth quarter, even when Alabama was losing... I just had this feeling that if they get that ball back, they keep making stops defensively, they're going to find a way, and they did. And I think the game commentators alluded to that a bit. At the end of the first half, it was 13 to nothing, but they said, this game is not over. Maybe it's to get you to keep watching, but I truly believe that, that Alabama is going to make halftime adjustments to come back into this game. It sort of reminded me of a national championship multiple years ago between Auburn and Florida State, where Florida State was down 21-3. to It looked like they didn't belong on the same field as Auburn, and they came out in the second half and made a giant comeback to win that game in almost dominant fashion. By five minutes to go in the fourth quarter, they had that game in hand. Not quite the same story here. Alabama had a chance to actually win it at the end of regulation and come all the way back, but you knew that Nick Saban and the Crimson Tide were going to make some adjustments to at least make it a more competitive game. Now, did I expect them to bench 
their starting quarterback, Jalen Hurts, who was 25-2 and in his starts over the course of his first two seasons with the Crimson Tide. No, I didn't think that was going to happen at all. But once they make that switch to the passing quarterback, Tua, who they believed would give them a chance either in this game or in the previous game against Clemson should they fall behind and should the running game get slowed down, which is something Nick Saban said he expected. Once they made that switch, it completely flipped the game. You could tell Alabama got a lot of momentum riding through the second half. Georgia's offense, even in the first half, was not playing great, and that sort of continued into the second half. They were never really able to establish Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle on the ground. Jake Fromm, I think, made some plays, but he clearly wasn't the same passer that Tua was in the second half. And Alabama was able to come all the way back, and then the giant pass to be, almost begin that opening drive, the, the second drive, the first drive of overtime for Alabama, and just to finish it like that. Uh, it was a pretty sweet comeback victory, especially when you consider the adversity from missing the field goal at the end of regulation and then coming back and winning it in OT. And we'll give Georgia some credit. They were not expected to be here at the start of this season. They're a little bit ahead of schedule. Second year of Kirby Smart, a really talented backfield, a freshman quarterback who didn't start at the true beginning freshman. of the season, true freshman. Now you look at him along with what you could have in the backfield. There will be some changes there, obviously a strong defense. This team is going to be poised to be one of the best, if not the best, in the SEC for the next couple years. And we talked about last week that this championship game, to me, and you agreed, showed that the SEC is the best conference. Easily, yes. though, we I mean, we could switch next year and we could see some of these programs on the upswing, some of these Big 12, some of these Big 10, Pac-12 programs, but this year in itself... What's happening here? You're not going to look at either Alabama or Georgia and say next year they've got no shot. You're not going to do that. Correct. And I also would say, even if it's not those two teams, the SEC's depth is going to provide them at minimum two playoff contending teams. Whereas if you look at a conference like the Pac-12 beyond USC, maybe being a little bit more competitive, I don't see where that second or third contender comes from. Big Ten, they've had a few seasons where we had Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State all in the discussion. So maybe that's the more likely one. Or the Big 12 with Oklahoma, though they lose Baker Mayfield most likely to the draft. It's an interesting conversation, but I think it has to start with the SEC. I think the SEC, until someone proves us wrong, is the most powerful conference in college football still. And it looks like next season will be just as good, if not better. And even an Alabama team who wins this national championship, you see a true freshman for them and Tua, a quarterback, come in and completely change a national championship. Where does this team go next year? Do they add an extra dimension if he's the starting quarterback throughout the entire season? Does that take them to yet another level despite them being 13-1 and in national champs this year? Can they get even better next year? I think that's a reasonable case to be made. What do you see happening with Jalen Hurts next season? Well, I sent in our group chat right after the game uh, to get the Delaware coaches on recruiting Jalen Hurts here, the Blue Hens, because I think there are going to be a lot of coaches calling him asking to transfer. Here's a guy who's now 26-2 and in his 14 starts across the first two seasons of his career. He still has junior and senior year eligibility. I think somebody is going to recruit this guy, and he's going to be the face of a contending team. I don't know who it will be, but I don't see him going away, and I don't see him staying at Alabama and being the backup. I think after this game, you have to look at Tua as the starting quarterback heading into next year. And if you can learn anything from, let's say, the Ohio State quarterback situation 
a few years ago. I think it's better to get out sooner than to be left kind of as that backup in the way that Braxton Miller might have been with the Buckeyes for a couple of years and eventually not really have the same NFL prospects. I expect Jalen Hurts to be somewhere else in 2018. Since the four-team college football playoff was put in place in 2014, Alabama has been in the playoff all four years. They've made it to the championship three times, and they have won the championship twice. That's a dynasty. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We'll transition into the NFL right now. I don't know if there were any true upsets. Maybe we'll give the Falcons that upset over the Rams. That was an upset. Besides that, all of the— I mean, uh, you, Titans, Titans, you want to give the Titans? Titans, yeah. that's that's deserving to be put up in there. Um, I, I guess no shockers, but that Titans, they came back from a big yeah. deficit in that game. Yeah, I mean, to your no shockers point, I saw a couple people tweet out Saturday and Sunday that we should have just started the AFC playoffs in round two or round three because I think most people are expecting New England and Pittsburgh to be there at the end. And even this weekend, I don't think those two AFC matchups are all that compelling. You have... Tennessee and New England and Jacksonville and Pittsburgh. Uh, But going back to these two games, you have to give Tennessee some credit for coming back the way they did against the Chiefs. And then the other one, the Jaguars-Bills, that's such a, that was an atrocity. I mean, that's such a bad game. Those two teams don't look like playoff teams. I don't expect the Jaguars to make it out beyond this weekend. I think it would have been great for the Bills to get that win just for their fan base and not having been in the playoffs for so long. But it almost felt like a little bit of a we're just happy to be here vibe, and they didn't really give a real playoff game. I mean, both of those teams are terrible. They both suck. Blake Bortles is terrible. I don't. I mean, Jake's not here to defend him, but he's awful, right? The guy had more rushing yards than passing yards in a playoff game. Give me, I mean, I think Nick Foles is playing terrible right now. Give me Nick Foles over Blake Bortles. I don't, you know, to say that Nick Foles is not the worst quarterback in the playoffs right now is insane, but it's true because Blake Bortles is absolutely terrible. And going off of that, I'm going to give the Titans some credit because yeah. because they won the game. But come on, Chiefs. Cream Hunt had 11 carries. Like the, Andy Reid. NFL leading this rusher. Is, this is another classic Andy Reid flop yes, in the playoffs. Is. This, If I'm a Chiefs fan, which I'm not, and I'm happy I'm not, I'm embarrassed because that's pathetic. You, What do you start? 4-0? I mean, you, everybody's looking. Like five or six. They were, the, they were the last undefeated team this you season. You beat the Patriots in the opener. Look at the Chiefs. Alex Smith, rejuvenation, MVP, Kareem Hunt, rookie of the year. Everybody's going, oh, look at the Chiefs. Look at the Chiefs. And then they fall apart, and then they get a couple wins before the playoffs, and they come into the playoffs, and they just don't even fight in there. And Marcus Mariota played a decent game in a very hostile place in the playoffs. And I'll give the Titans credit for that, but these four teams in the divisional round in the AFC, these are not very good teams. And now we will look later on in the show to the Steelers and the Patriots. But is there really anybody educated enough to look at these two games and say that either the Titans or the Jaguars actually have a shot? I think you maybe give Tennessee a little bit more of a chance because there is some research to say that the Patriots' defense in recent years, and especially this year, has struggled with mobile quarterbacks. They struggled against Cam Newton and the Panthers. They actually lost that game. They've struggled a little bit when Tyrod Taylor is on his A game when the Bills face off against the Patriots. But even then, you're really pooling for something to find if you're going to that as your argument for why Tennessee is going to beat New England, the team that had, what, two, three losses in the regular season, by far the favorites in the AFC. And then to Jacksonville, I mean, you can say that they have a great defense, 
but that doesn't give me any confidence that they can outscore a Pittsburgh team that has weapons from top to bottom. Antonio Brown should be back. Juju Smith-Schuster, Le'Veon Bell in the backfield. That seems so stacked. Even if the defense slows them down a tad, where do you go offensively to match what the Pittsburgh Steelers can output? I think that both of those teams, the Titans and the Jaguars, will have their seasons ended. I'll say that now. I agree. And I I don't want to sound ridiculous here, but I think that this Jaguars defense mania is a little bit over the top. You want to talk about a good defensive performance? Yeah, I agree with that. They gave up three points. The Bills' offense is not good. The Bills' Mm -hmm. offense is not good. I don't care. Nate Nate Peterman, Tyrod Taylor, they're not good. They're, They're not good. You want to talk about a good defensive team all of a sudden? The Falcons gave up 13 points to the best offense in football on their home turf. Like to me, that that is a defense that is going to gain the attention of people that should gain the attention of people more than maybe the Jags. Because that's right. Even if they hold the Steelers to say seven, maybe ten in the first half, at the end of the day, they're gonna get beat by the arm of Roethlisberger and Bell, and that's going to be too much for them because all good defense can only go so far in the playoffs, and the only defense I can think they went further than maybe people thought was the Broncos a couple of years ago with Peyton Manning unable to throw. Yeah, I mean, I think that team, and even if you look further back to like the 2000 Baltimore Ravens, I think those teams show you that there are ways that you can win a Super Bowl without an elite quarterback. But with that being said, if you want to go back to the past 16 back to that Ravens team on until now. What is that, two out of 16? One-eighth of a chance, and the other seven times a team wins, it's because they have an elite quarterback. So I will take the elite quarterback over the elite defense every time based on those percentages. And even then, I don't think this Jaguars defense is to the level of a Denver defense from whatever the 2013, 2014, to where they're making plays that sets up the offense in good field position. Plus, those teams also have ball control quarterbacks, right? They had a smart Peyton Manning who was going to do just enough to win the game. Blake Bortles is probably the opposite of that. Five interceptions leading into the playoffs in the previous two games, 80 passing yards to 88 rushing yards for Bortles in week one of the playoffs. His offense puts up 10 points. They're done this weekend. And I mean, they're going to stick with Blake Bortles moving forward, but the charade that Blake Bortles is an above average quarterback in the NFL is preposterous to me and I'm glad that he had a terrible game this weekend to prove that we'll go to the NFC this is way more interesting both the games were better and speaking of that Rams game you felt like maybe the Rams had a shot they they kept themselves in it but at some point this Falcons team that Jake last week said that he had no confidence in yeah Jake's not having his picks aren't looking too good right now no he he said the Falcons were overrated you said they were underrated I I don't think I commented on that you said they were adequately rated and I I still we see this happen sometimes a six goes into the threes house and beats the three they have a quarterback that just went to the Super Bowl last year they have one of if not the best receivers in football they've got a solid running game and they've got a defense that's playing lights out right now this team is scary and they 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 Beat they sh- they beat handily the Rams on Saturday. Yeah, and I think the Rams come into the playoffs as no slouch. That's a pretty good football team. We're talking about you know the Jags, the Titans, the Bills not belonging as playoff teams. This Rams team certainly belongs in the playoffs. That's a great team, especially on the offensive side of the ball. You know we can talk for hours about how great Todd Gurley is. Jared Goff obviously took a huge step forward. I think Robert Woods, Sammy Watkins give them some okay targets on the outside. Even Co- Cooper Cup though. Rookie from the slot. This That was a great Rams offense. And the 
Falcons defense took it to them. Deion Jones uh, watched a whole video earlier this week from Sports Illustrated about how good he has been, especially in the last few weeks leading up to the playoffs. That's a name that I think a lot of people are going to be learning about throughout these playoffs, especially if the Falcons continue to advance. He has made himself into probably the best coverage linebacker in the league. In a time where tight ends create probably the toughest mismatches for defense, defenses across the league, he is the answer to those problems. He can cover linebackers, he can cover running backs out of the backfield, and he certainly gave the Rams and Todd Gurley all they could handle last weekend. And you combine that with, I think, a Falcons offense that's hitting its stride. Matt Ryan's counting numbers, his passing yards, his touchdowns, his interceptions don't look nearly as good as they did last season. But if you look beneath that, his QBR is right in line where it was a season ago. His number of interceptable passes right in line with where he was a season ago. He simply did not have the same luck. Julio Jones, same thing in the red zone. He is still a premier target despite only having three touchdowns this season. You'd be lying to yourself if you said he wasn't a top five wide receiver in the league. Plus, you throw in the running backs, Freeman and Coleman. This is a dangerous team. This is as dangerous a team in the NFC as any. And they especially proved it with not just a win, but a pretty dominant win against the Rams on the road this weekend. The Atlanta Falcons will play the Eagles on Saturday. We'll preview that game and we will preview all of the divisional games a little bit later on in the show. Before that, let's close the book on the Rams a little bit. This was a very good season for them, a great season by all measures. First-year head coach Sean McVay marches in there and transforms a team that, for the last five or so years, had a good defense, but a really bad offense. The 8-8 the, the eight and eight Jeff Fishers. That, those days are over. He comes in, he puts together this girly golf combination and all these receivers that we really didn't hear a lot of, some of them at least, and they win that division, they host a playoff game in L.A., this is a team with the possible, I'll put it in air quotes, possible demise of the Seahawks. This is a team that's going to be here for the next several years. And I think there may be a year ahead of schedule this year being, what were they, 12 and 4, 11 and 5? 11 and 5. 11 and 5. I think that you are expecting this team to be better than what they were last year, but I don't think you expected this. I don't think you expected Todd Gurley to lead the NFL in scrimmage yards and Jared Goff to be as good as he was. I think you can look at Jared Goff now as a legitimate building block for a franchise, and they're in a pretty good position compared to Seattle, compared to Arizona, and maybe even the team for them to watch out for in their own division would be San Francisco. We'll see what they can put around Jimmy Garoppolo. Mm -hmm. But you enter next season expecting the Rams to win the NFC West, and I think once they're in the playoffs with – I mean, obviously, I just went on and on about how good the Falcons are, but with how good that Gurley and Goff have been, they will be competitive with teams next season, and I think they'll only continue to get better. There's no reason to think that McVay won't continue to grow with this team. Some people will say that the Titans-Chiefs was the best game of wildcard weekend. I'll say it was Panthers-Saints, Yeah, the way the Panthers fought. Cam, Cam Newton deserves a lot of credit the way he fought in that game, but behind an offensive line that wasn't really protecting him at all. And a couple bad decisions toward the end of that game, the intentional grounding, etc. The Panthers look yeah, that, I mean, that that grounding just real quick. Yeah, that killed their last drive. They had a chance, of course, to, yeah, to to make this an overtime game or to win the game, and that that was huge. I mean, it looked like for a while the, when the the Saints were up twenty one to six, you're thinking, oh, this is a blowout. The the Saints are going to blow their own divisional opponent out of their own house, or out of the Saints' house. And the Panthers, they, they they fought, and this is a team that I think if they got paired up against a different team in the first round, maybe they would have won it. That's a tough matchup, 
especially to, they had to beat the Saints three times this season. Or they, the Saints had to beat them three times because the Saints had already beat them twice. And the Panthers couldn't get a win here, and now the Saints move on, and this is a very, very good offense, very well-rounded Saints team. Drew Brees scares the crap out of me as an Eagles fan. On that last drive where they put the game on ice, they had a third down in three or four. He throws a back shoulder pass to Michael Thomas one-on-one. It's perfect coverage from the Carolina Panthers corner, and he puts it on the perfect spot for Thomas to turn around, make the grab, get under the ball. The ball does not touch the ground as Thomas rolls over and picks up the biggest first down of the game. People forget about how good this guy is. He he is stellar when he is on. You combine that with Mark Ingram and what Alvin Kamara has brought this team, I think the ultimate matchup nightmare in the NFC, that team is scary. Plus, defensively, they're better than they were a year ago, probably ever in the Drew Brees era. Marshawn Lattimore had a tough game against the Panthers, but when it counted, that defense did stand tall and make that stop on Cam Newton, uh, drawing that intentional grounding with good pressure from the front four all throughout the fourth quarter. Again, that is another team in New Orleans that's pretty scary. Kamara and Ingram Ingram combined for 45 yards, and they still won. Yeah. Imagine if these guys go out there and at the very least put up 40 to 50 yards each. They had one of their worst, if not their worst game of the season. The Saints team only rushed for 41 yards on 22 carries. That's less than two yards a carry. Drew Brees, 23 of 33, 369, two touchdowns and an interception. The Panthers fought, and that's what you're going to see from good teams in the playoffs. Now the Saints go to Minnesota. And that's going to be a very intriguing matchup. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We're looking to the divisional round right now in the NFL. We'll start in Philadelphia because that's the team of interest to most of the population listening to this <laughs> show. And you, of course, um, and, and Amid, who is, I'm sure, listening right now. The Eagles are going to be faced with a very tough challenge facing the Falcons. Let's just start with this. Where does your confidence level lie and if it's low, is there anything do you get? Is there any solace that you can turn to if your confidence level is low? Well, well first, can I just say that? Yeah, go for it. To address another thing that came up on Twitter yesterday, that the Eagles should definitely be considered the underdogs in this game. One hundred percent. They're the first team all time to be a number one seed at home and be an underdog, but it is definitely justified. We talked earlier about how good the Falcons looked last week and coming into the playoffs, and obviously the Eagles are without the MVP of the league, Carson Wentz, and they have inserted Nick Foles, who struggled in the two games coming into the playoffs at the end of the regular season. My confidence is low. I think you take solace in home field advantage and a very good defense. If the defense keeps the Eagles in the game and you hopefully get, you know, we talk about good Carson, excuse me, good, good Nick Foles versus bad Nick Foles. If you get good Nick Foles in the fourth quarter, there is a chance that you can win this football game but my confidence is low. The Falcons looked really good last week. I think they're going to bring it in both facets of the game, limit the Eagles offensively. They'll key in on the run, which I think is important for the Eagles to establish. They weren't able to do that against Oakland. They weren't able to do that against Dallas, and it really hurt them. My confidence is low, but with that being said, this game is not like an 80-20 swing to me. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 65-35, 60-40, but certainly should be in the Falcons' favor. And I think it would be crazy to jump out there and say the Falcons are going to... It's not going to be some blowout. It, it's it's not going to be... It's, it's going to be 
a relatively competitive game. And what I'll say about this game is that the Eagles, if their defense plays strong in that first half and they keep it right in there, home football game in January, it's supposed to be get, get cold again on Saturday. I know it's it's mid-50s yeah, today. Saturday night. Yes, it's supposed to be very chilly Saturday afternoon into Saturday night. I actually, I actually think there's a chance of, of freezing rain snow. I'm not sure that's going to play an impact here. But you get the Falcons in some different weather. You have a tough defense. It's, it's not, for me, it's not, oh, if Nick Foles plays like this. I, I'm not approaching the game like that. I'm approaching the game in the sense that Nick Foles won't be that good. Because he hasn't shown this season that he is good. But mm-hmm. but what I'll say is, even if he's not good, I'm still not completely ruling out the Eagles' shot. I think it's going to be tough, but yeah. I'm not ruling it well, out. The, the Falcons have been not have not been good in Philadelphia with Matt Ryan. They're 1-3. They're not the same team in weather as they are in a dome. I think if there's freezing rain or snow or excessive wind, that certainly plays to the Eagles' favor as a team that has to stress defense first and the running game offensively. But the talent has to definitely go in the Falcons' direction right now. It would be an upset if the Eagles win. But as you just said, I think that there are avenues to to an Eagles victory that maybe aren't being respected by everybody out there. I know this game is going to be huge around here. Everybody's going to be wa- – I know it's huge. But to me, there's something about Saints-Vikings that is very intriguing, a very attractive game. I'm excited for this one too. This is a game in which you put up a great offense with a great defense and two teams that – weren't division winners last year. The Vikings, maybe people thought expected them, not as much of a surprise as the Vikings winning with Rodgers out compared to the Saints winning with your Newtons and your Ryans. But the way the Saints have been playing, to pair up against a Vikings team that gets two weeks of rest going into this, it should be exciting. What stands out to you most in this game? Matchup, players, etc. Saints running attack versus Minnesota front seven. As you mentioned earlier, the Saints struggled running the football against Carolina, just 41 rushing yards, which has to be close to a season low. They had two of, I think, the top five guys from scrimmage in the league in Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram this season. The question, I think, for the Saints is, can they establish the run against Minnesota and alleviate the stress on Drew Brees? Because that Minnesota back four, the secondary, is very good and I think underrated going up against Drew Brees. I don't think it'll be a field day like it was against Carolina. And certainly establishing the run has been the most successful facet of the Saints this season. They've been run first, even though they do have Drew Brees. Defensively, the Vikings have probably been underrated all season. If anybody can stop Kamara and Ingram, it's probably the Vikings. That's the matchup I'm looking at, because if they can't stop the running game, I think it'll be tough for Case Keenum and the Vikings' offense to keep up in a potential shootout. I think the Vikings' defense has to make it a low-scoring game, or at least could make it a low-scoring game to give Minnesota the best chance of winning. The Vikings beat the Saints 29-19 to in the season opener back in September. I'm going to point out a game on December 10th in Carolina. The Vikings were beat by the Panthers 31-24. to It snapped the Vikings' eight-game win streak. Jonathan Stewart ran for three touchdowns. That is how they beat him. I think the Saints will have more success in this game on the ground than in the air. The Vikings yeah. have very good rush defense, but I feel like their pass defense is better. And obviously, mm-hmm. we'll put Drew Drew Brees ahead of Cam Newton here in terms of quarterback strength, but the, 
Saints rush offense is better than the Panthers rush offense. So if you, I guarantee you, the Saints would be looking at this game and saying, "This is how they beat them. This is how a team that we have beat three times beat a team that we are playing this week." So if they can get that going, the pressure is going to be on Keenum. And if you put the pressure on Case Keenum, that's going to be very difficult for the Vikings because this is a team that leads with their running game, leads with their defense, and Keenum does a little more than a game manager. But if they have to get into a shootout, 100% it benefits. The Saints have the edge here. I agree. AFC. What's what stands out? I mean, we we got two teams that are going to be favored big time in the Steelers and the Patriots, and we both said that we thought the Titans actually had a a better shot because of their quarterback play. Uh, but the Jaguars, do you give them any chance here to get some turnovers, maybe hold the Steelers back in their own territory, or do you not think that happens this weekend? I don't think that happens, and I think even if they do, my confidence is so low in Blake Portals and the Jaguars' offense that I still don't think they win the game. Maybe they can make it close, and hopefully for the NFL viewing audience, they do. But I've seen a good handful of Ben Roethlisberger leading drives down the field to win games at the end. They probably should have had a game-winning drive against New England earlier this year. They've done it many times before. They snapped Kansas City's winning streak earlier this year with a late-game drive. They have so many threats offensively. I find it hard to believe that Jacksonville would be able to keep that Pittsburgh offense down for long enough to actually give Blake Bortles and company a chance offensively. I still think that Titans-Patriots has the potential to be closer, but really in the AFC, I think the only marquee matchup we're going to get is going to be Patriots-Steelers next week for the conference championship. On the note of the Patriots here, before we go to break, we both read the story. I'm sure a lot of people read it on ESPN. Uh, Seth Wickersham that's how you pronounce his last name, correct? Yes. Sir. Yeah, the story about the rift between Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft, the owner, Bill Belichick, the coach, Tom Brady, the quarterback, and the power struggle here. To me, it didn't. It didn't. That story didn't surprise me because I feel like this stuff happens often. It's just a matter of managing it. And a little, I'm not going to say what I didn't believe. I think it all was legitimate reporting. But the, the, the people that have gone crazy to say, oh, this is the last year, I think it's done, I don't think as much of that. I agree. The most the thing I think that is most true, or at least deserves skepticism, or at least deserves skepticism at the time, was the Jimmy Garoppolo trade. That didn't make sense to me, and I think that's what spurred digging into this a little bit more. Why trade Jimmy Garoppolo for a second-round pick midseason after you had already traded your backup to Jimmy Garoppolo, Jacoby Brissett, before the season and had denied offers for a first-round pick for Garoppolo coming into the season? Why all of a sudden have a change of heart and trade him midway through the season? I thought the story did an excellent job of outlining potentially why the re- potentially the reasoning behind that decision. That being said... I don't think that changes the way the Patriots play this week. I don't think it changes them going through the playoffs. Over the course of how many ever years they've been together, it couldn't have all been perfect between Belichick and Brady. They've been together too long. They've been through so many different things that I'm sure they've had disagreements and disputes. All of that being said, they're a phenomenal football team, and they're going to compete this weekend, and the story doesn't necessarily aim to break them apart, 
but I don't think that it will, from a football perspective, affect this team. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. So the all-star voting, we're already in second, I guess, returns here, you could call it. Durant, the top forward in the West. Curry, the top guard in the West. LeBron, the top forward in the East. And Kyrie Irving from the Celtics, the top guard in the East as well. Rather than going through all of these, Brandon, is looking at these these 40 players, 10 from the East and 10 from the West, give us a couple that stand out. Surprises or a couple players that you say, yeah, they should be here, maybe more votes than you would expected or less than you expected. I think it's worth mentioning Kyle Kuzma as the eighth-ranked frontcourt player in the Western Conference. He won't be in the All-Star game, nor does he deserve to, so I'm not saying that he's snubbed. I think it's actually... Uh, remarkable how many votes he's getting. And I think he is deserving of some recognition. He was a low first-round pick, and he, I think, has given that L.A. team a spark. They are hitting a lull right now, and they're off-the-court issues, if you will, that we won't get into right now. But he's been pretty impressive to me any time that I watch the Lakers. And in the Eastern Conference, I'll spotlight Victor Oladipo, who is the fourth-ranked guard. I haven't worked out my 12, but I think he would be on my Eastern Conference All-Star team if I had to pick right now. The Indiana Pacers have fallen off a little bit from their early season pace, especially in the three-point department, but Oladipo has been pretty impressive as the frontman of that offense, putting him on the ball a little bit more than he was in OKC last year. He's starting to blossom, maybe a late blossomer, but uh, in the right situation now in Indiana and deserving of this all-star recognition. I think that's that's a nice one to point out because of what he's done there. You, I mean, you look at somebody like Isaiah Thomas. This is when you get into the issues with fan voting, and I don't want to, to go crazy over this, but mm-hmm. Isaiah Thomas has played, what, five games? Not even. Not even. Like two or three. Two or three games. Yeah. And, and he's got more votes than uh, Lowry Beal and Jalen Brown, maybe some of those players are better than others right now. But Isaiah Thomas is a guy who probably shouldn't be there. Uh, out in the West, you got the typical suspects, Curry, Harden, Russell Westbrook, Clay Thompson, Anthony Davis, Draymond Green, Demarcus Cousins. I think Kuzma was a surprise that you pointed out. Um, we'll get to the Minnesota Timberwolves in a second, but and speaking of how good they've been, they've got a little bit of representation there with Carl Anthony Towns and Jimmy Butler, and then for the Suns, Devin Booker currently in there as well, but obviously not all these guys will make it. And um, from the New York Knicks, Christos Porzingis as the fourth front court player right now, leading the way for a Knicks team that's still in contention. The Timberwolves in the West, let's go to them. That We were talking before the show about teams that have turned it around in the NBA, and there has been no team that has turned it around from 2016 to 2017 to 2017 to 2018 as the Minnesota Timberwolves. They, you said they have ha- they had just over 30 wins total last year. Correct. They are 11 games over 500, 27 and 16, number four currently in the West, which would have them playing the Trailblazers if, if the playoffs were to end today. And the Timberwolves, you throw in Jimmy Butler, you got a very good and developing young group of players led by Carl Anthony Towns just to spotlight this team for a little while. And speaking of the downfall of maybe a team like the Clippers, and we often speak in the NBA about how it's not like the NFL. You know, all these teams that didn't make the playoffs last year, or in this year, the NBA, it's more slow change. It doesn't happen one year. But with the Timberwolves, we're seeing what a few offseason changes can do. Yeah, and some people were probably a year too early on them last year. 
expecting them, and I heard some people predicting 40-plus wins, 50-plus wins last year with the core of Cat, Carl Anthony Towns, Wiggins, and Levine. Now they have the experience, right? So they add Jimmy Butler, they add Taj Gibson, they add Jamal Crawford, Jeff Teague. They have some more experience, but then you still are, I think, expecting some more out of the young players. You're expecting Carl Anthony Towns to take a step forward defensively. He is not. You're expecting Wiggins to cut down on some of his boneheaded turnovers and poor offensive plays. He's just sloppy. You're getting a lot more, I think, than you probably thought you would get out of Tyus Jones, especially with Teague out right now. I think Jones has done a nice job filling in for him, and he will be eventually a nice option off the bench once they get Teague back as the starting point guard. By far, the biggest improvement of any Western Conference team, I guess the question comes now, how long until they can be considered among the best teams? They're fourth in the West right now. They're probably, tell me if you disagree, but they're not in the class of the Warriors, Rockets, and Spurs. What do they need to do to get there? That's probably the next step for this team because they're going to be in the playoffs this year, but how do they actually become a real contender? And I think what's interesting is that we can look at, say, the uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder, who sit two games above 500 at 22 and 20, and that's a team that, with this new group, Paul George, Carmelo, and uh, Westbrook, they've, I guess, struggled to gel at some points. A lot of people would look at two games over 500 through 42 games. Oh, they should be better than that. Personally, I would look. I, I feel like the, the the national landscape would look at the Thunder and say, "Oh, that's a team that, if anything." could belong in the San Antonio, Houston, Golden State just because of the players they have that are superstars. I'm not going to say that that team's got a better shot of beating the Warriors right now than the T-Wolves do, but I, this, I think they do. But at the same but at the same time, yeah. there's some th- this goes to show when you're a young team, you have to prove something and if you are number 4, that's great for Minnesota, but number 6 Thunder I'm, I hate to do this right now, but if they were to play the Spurs in the first round and beat them, the T-Wolves beat the Blazers, they're going to place the Warriors in the next round, assuming all the other matchups go as predicted. Mm-hmm. So there, it, it, it takes some time here, but I think they deserve credit. I don't know if nationally they will receive as much respect as, say, in Oklahoma City right now. And Oklahoma City, that's a team that will we'll continue to watch as they get themselves together, and I think people expect them to be better than the way they've been. Portland's been a little bit Pleasant, I'll say. I mean, I don't know only three games above 500, but I hate to go through a whole standings march right now. Well, it's just while I'm looking at him, it's, though. It's the toughest thing is like we do all of this. At what point do we have to just say, can they actually compete with the Warriors? To most of these teams, the question is no. Then what are we doing here? Like the Warriors <laughs> are they're the best team in the NBA, and to actually compete with them takes a lot. It takes you more than just being a playoff team right it takes more than the Timberwolves adding Jimmy Butler they still if you compared the Timberwolves roster to the Warriors right now the Warriors still probably have four players that are better than anybody on the Timberwolves that's just what you're up against right now is this juggernaut team to where if you're not way better than the rest of the league you're not even really in the conversation. So what does it take then for the Timberwolves, for the Thunder to get up there? I think the Thunder have an easier road to climb because they have the elite talent of Russell Westbrook and Paul George, who we have seen in the past, can make an outsized impact in a seven-game series compared to maybe a deeper team but a less experienced team in Minnesota. 
Steve Kerr, Warriors coach, joked before last night's game between the Warriors and the Clippers that Lou Williams might go out there and have a nice scoring game, and he put up 50 points. Speaking of the Warriors, they lost to the Clippers 125-106. to That is one of only several losses for this team on the season. Obviously, they still have one of the best records, um, the best record in the association at 33-9. and But the Clippers, that's a team that's two games under five hundred. They were losing for a while. Then they won a little bit. Now, sitting out of the playoffs, a game out, wh- wh- where do you think this team stands? Is this team still a contender, or do they start to look towards possibly selling some pieces, maybe like Lou Williams? Yeah, it's a huge question right now. They're 7-3 and three in their last 10 games, but as you mentioned, still two games out of Two, two games below 500, not in the playoff picture if the season ended today. Blake Griffin came back briefly from injury. Now he's back out again with a concussion. Milos Teodosic out with plantar fasciitis. Patrick Beverly out for the season. They won't get him back until next year. So it's not what you expected coming. Uh, and it, excuse me, I also forgot uh, Danilo Gallinari also injured. So they have not fulfilled, I think, their potential this year. But that's been the song and dance of this Clippers team for, what, five years now? So at some point, do you begin to sell off pieces? Lou Williams, I think, would be the first guy because he's not probably in your long-term plans. And I think he could really help a borderline contending team, such as the Philadelphia 76ers, who could use scoring off the bench, or somebody like New Orleans, who could use a presence on the wing or as a guard to complement their big so fringe playoff team. But with all that being said, they're still, they still have to be in the conversation, particularly if Blake comes back. So I guess I don't have an answer for you one way or the other. You have to wait and see. But if they do sell, they're going to have maybe the most appealing assets in Williams and DeAndre Jordan, who could possibly shake up the Eastern Conference playoff picture. Talks of him going to Cleveland. Talks of him going to Washington, that would really change things in the East if he gets dealt. But at this moment, I think you have to wait and see. They have a tough schedule coming up, starting with this Warriors game. They play, I think, playoff teams for five or six games straight. After that, you can maybe make a clearer evaluation of where the Clippers are at.